want to study church history, and uh, we're going to skip through a few. When we think about church history, all right, um, the great Isaac Watts line in a hymn that you've sung many times, time like an ever-rolling stream soon bears us all away. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. I mean, time is like that, all right? In your own life, uh, time is quick, all right? You might have sat there and thought, man, the semester's coming up, and you're, you're trying to get ready, and you don't have time to get ready. But before you realize it, the semester is gone, all right? In church history, time itself is like that. Vapor, all right? It's like here today, it's gone tomorrow. And so much is just forgotten in that uh, ever-rolling stream of, of history. So we want to talk about kind of why study church history. And I want to give you some reminders and some motivators about church history. What I want to give you are some, uh, some, particular, some particular motivators. I'm going to skip this slide. We're going to go through here. It's all printed up for you there. Uh, we're going to go on to the actual motivators themselves, all right? Why should I be interested to the choir here? Because I'm assuming that you're already interested in church history, all right? But I want you to think through a little bit. You're going you're gonna to tell somebody one day, I'm taking a church history class, and they're going to look at you like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, kind of like Christ when you tell people, I had surgery. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm taking church history. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's like getting your left leg cut off, all right? Who would want to do such a thing? Uh, I use here um, some points that are brought up by Michael Haken in a little book of this same title, Why Should I Be Interested in Church History? And it's a little bitty Reformation Heritage book that you can, uh, you can get, a, get a hold of. Here's a, a picture of the, of the cover. And he mentions in this book eight things, all right? And we're going to, or seven things, I think it is. And uh, we're going we're gonna to look at each one of these. History has meaning under God's direction. History teaches us valuable lessons. History builds humility and gratitude. Um, history liberates us from the tyranny of the present. Um, history acquaints us with the wisdom of others, other Christians that have gone before us. It offers a model for imitation. And lastly, it stirs us to the praise of God. All right? And I thought that last one was interesting in light of what Jim said the other day. All right? Uh, everything we do here, indeed, should create in our hearts a greater love for God, a greater fear of God, a greater reverence of God. I mean, if that's not happening in your academic pursuit, then you're either pursuing it wrong or maybe you're in the wrong academic pursuit. <laughs> you know, um, and and that may be that may be true. That may be true in your own heart. I don't know. You know, I'm just I'm just dying in school. This is not what I want to do, but I have to do this because I've told people I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna study uh, theology and study history. Um, but I understand that everything that excites me, everything that stirs a, a, a greater fear of God in my own heart, doesn't necessarily work for everybody in the church. You know, we all have different callings, do we not? And different giftedness and different desires. And uh, I happen to love studying church history. Um, if you'd asked me if I wanted to do this 30 years ago, I would have just absolutely laughed, you know, so it gives me hope for my kids <laughs> because, uh, I tell my wife all the time, they are not right now who they will be 20 years from now. They will be different people. God will work on them and they will, they will change like us. 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And but for the grace of God, we would not be in this room today. And so, all right. So let's think a little bit about under God's direction. History has meaning under God's direction. Paul says in Acts 17, "In Him we live and move and have our being." And Paul's not just saying that to the people that were there. He's, this is a very inclusive we, isn't it? All people live and move and have their being in God. That means everybody that we're going to study in the history of the church lives and moves and has their being in God. Okay? So we want to consider, um, there's, some, there's some sense when we consider man that there is a unity. We, we talk about us all being an atom. We talk about us all sharing this this common common humanity. And Hankin has a great comment in uh, in the book. I think I printed it up here for you. And I can't go backwards, or can I go backwards and get that off of there? I can't. Look at the look at the state that Hankin Hank makes. Each human being is part of something much larger. For the human race descended from one man and one woman and expanded across the world through the ages. God is executing His sovereign plan for our lives, not as isolated atoms of humanity but as descendants of our ancestors, parents of future generations, and members of present-day communities of nations. Now, this unity that we have is much more significant if we think of the unity that we have within the body of Christ. All right, let's look over Romans. If you have your Bible, and you'll need a Bible each week, and you'll need uh, you know, your, your text. You might, you might not need your textbook, actually, each week, but I would, I would encourage you to bring a Bible or at least have the app on your phone. And uh, look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. We should probably read 4 and 5. One of you guys got that? For we, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ individually members of one another. All right, you see that, that, that sense of commonality. That, that's something that's beyond just the, the regular unity of humanity, if you will. We have a, a special relation to one another because of our being not simply an Adam, born in Adam, but now in Christ we're members of, of one body. Haken also says that when we read about believers in churches from times past, we are reading our family history, the stories of our brothers and sisters. These are guys that are that are related to you. Right? Um, you know, we all certainly want to go see Jesus and, and be with Him forever. But what a joy that when we go to heaven, um, you know, we talk about the importance of the corporate nature of the church in this world. Um, you're not just going to go to heaven to be with Jesus. You're going to go to heaven to be with all the saints with Jesus. Um, surely, what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. Uh, the glory of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship forever and adore Him. But we will do it there, what? We'll do it together. We won't do it individually. Heaven's not just your cloud and your time to be your time to be with Jesus. It's the perfecting of everything that our individuality fights against now. We, we fight to be alone, fight to be away from responsibilities, if I can just have some time by myself. You know, those are because of our weakness and because of our selfishness and our sinfulness. But we we need that corporate nature of the body. We need it now. We'll experience it fully 
in, in heaven. And you'll, you'll meet the Athanasiuses of the world. You'll, you'll, you'll stand there, you know, hopefully with many of these men and women that, that will study. And uh, you may not see Arius there, but, you know, maybe you'll, maybe you'll meet Ambrose of Milan, the man that preached the gospel to Augustine. Would that be amazing? I mean, you'll, you'll stand there with, with the saints of, of all the ages and, and the worship, the corporate worship of, of our great God. Uh, well, this kind of, uh, this kind of unity uh, within humanity, uh, history having meaning under God's direction, also is due to God's certain activity, yet not always his clear purposes in history. So in Ephesians 1.11, it says that God works out what? All things after the counsel of his will, all right? And when we read the Bible, we clearly know and understand where and when God and how God is working. Because he says how he's working. He's revealed how he's working. The study of history from post-apostolic times to today becomes a little more difficult, doesn't it? All right? um, but we can still know as believers that God is indeed working out all things after the counsel of his will. I might not know exactly what he's doing in history. I know he's doing all things, but I don't, I mean, I don't have the interpretive key, if you will, of Scripture to the events of the Reformation. Um, so I can guess, I can estimate, but you know, when I'm writing a paper or doing research, I don't want to just guess. <laughs> I want to know clear things. And but I do trust that God is working all things after His purposes. Uh, history, thirdly, history is the realm in which God has and is working His redemptive activity. All right, there in First Corinthians chapter 15, uh, regarding the gospel. Christ's burial, his resurrection, his appearances, and the gospel continues to spread. Uh, it is in and throughout history, one fourth thing about this, it is in and throughout history that God is working all things together for the good of his people. And we talked about this Sunday a little bit, uh, looked a little bit at Romans 8, 28, about God working out all things after the counsel of his will. So God did not, you know, go to sleep or take a break. At the end of the apostolic age, God's sovereign purposes, God's providence, God's control of history is still being worked out. Secondly, valuable lessons. Right? History teaches us some valuable lessons. Um, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Why do we have that Old Testament? But we have we have rich examples uh, that are given to us. Um, History does several things here that I want us to that I want us to see. Uh, it shapes history shapes uh, by its shaping continuity. Um, the past has a the present is the culmination of the overseen and providentially guided events of the past. Right, so there is a continuity uh, to history. And that will that will help us in trying to make some connections. History also has what uh, we might call a protective usefulness. All right, um, there is much to learn from the past and much to hurt us if we do not learn from the past. So, just an example here about uh, heresy. And let's think about Arianism in particular. All right, Arianism has been referred to by some as the archetypal heresy. It's like always present. It never seems to go away. Uh, we have it in the early church there in the fourth century. 
Uh, we have it, it springs back up again in the 17th and 18th centuries in England. Uh, it's here with us today. We still have the Jehovah's Witnesses coming by and knocking at the door. It just never dies, all right? And, and this is the one thing that makes Christianity very unique. It's view of Christ, right? Every other religion seems to have a faulty view of who Jesus really is, right? Um, so it can be it can be very protective for us. Uh, there's much to learn from and much to hurt us if we do not. Also, um, by its unpredictable directions, right? Uh, the future, from our vantage point, is very uncertain and it's undefined. God has everything mapped out, and you comfort yourself with that all the time, all right? But when we're talking about the history of the church, we do not know what is about to come on the horizon. Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't be, but we're constantly shocked when when professing believers who have been influential in the church abandon the faith. You know, here recently it's been the Joshua Harris uh, type thing that's happened here just in the last couple of months. All right, and everybody's like devastated. Oh man, I never, I never, I never saw it coming. I can't believe this is happening. Well, but if we look back at history, we can see what this kind of thing happens happens all the time, right? Um, and hopefully, by the grace of God, it won't happen to one of us. History teaches valuable lessons in this way. All right, let's think a little more. And it builds gratitude, all right? One sows, another reaps. That's a historical lesson there that can teach us something as well. So just say a couple things about this, all right? Church come to understand the debt of gratitude they owe to those who have gone before them. Hebrews 13:7. Remember what? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, those who walked faithfully. Imitate their faith. All right. So there's there's value in in history in teaching us a sense of humility for those who have gone before us. Also, believers who study the history of the church are moved to humility seeing the great variety of people that God has used in the past. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. What a, you know, what a ragtag bunch of bums, and there they are. There's, there's Lion Abraham, there's, uh, you know, Runaway Moses, and, and there's, uh, you know, Give Herself Away Rahab. There's all kinds of people in Hebrews chapter 11, and then there's you and I, all right? But we're thankful that God has used these people and we're moved to humility thinking about ourselves, that God might actually use us for his purpose, right? Uh, fourth, uh, history bondage that we have to the present, all right? Why should I be interested? The tyranny of the present. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who made the comment that uh, um, history has a way of tearing away the idols that we build up in, in the present. And so we, we don't want to get so focused in our lives that we forget about what's happened before, right? Um, so Jeremiah calls people to uh, stand by the roads and look and ask for what? For ancient paths, right? Um, think about a couple of things here, right? Uh, number one, can liberate us from the tyranny of the present by setting us free from the limited perspective afforded by our own personal experience that we tend to value above all else. It's a long quote in there by P.T. Forsyth. You can you can look at 
But, you know, most people really just seem to care about their own view today. And, and that becomes their idol. That's what they cherish, right? And, but history has a way of, of breaking them out of that, right? Um, I wish I'd learned the value of history as a teenager. <laughs> then I could have been broken, could have, could, have, could have let go of a lot of things that I held about, my, about myself. You know, you know, in raising kids, it's amazing how you get in conversations with 15 to 18-year-old boys, and they think they're the only kid in the world that ever knew X, Y, or Z. Um, that was not you, I'm sure, when you were a 15 to 17, 18-year-old boy. We knew A, B, and C. <laughs> a, B, and C. There you go. Um, but every one of my boys, from Timothy to Nathan to Ben, has gone through this period of older teenage arrogance, where they just know everything. And they're like the only one in the whole planet that ever knew that. And I'm like, gosh, this is amazing that you're here so we can know that. Because nobody's ever known that before. They get very, their, their world is very small. It just revolves around their own heads and they think nobody ever knew this or experienced this. And uh, they kind of make an idol out of their, their personal ideas. <clears throat> um, a second thing here to think about. By keeping us from making all of our judgments about the present and the future based upon our own limited knowledge and leading us into either despair or delusion. This is a great, well, a great cure for this is going to be your research paper. <laughs> all right. Um, you're going to have an idea. Remember your, your supposed answer to the research question? All right. And it's really cool as you start to research and dig, you realize some of your questions are just bad questions. Some of your questions are off. Your assumptions are off. And you're correcting yourself all the time. You were you were heading this way, and all of a sudden the resources all did what? They they took you they took you over here. And you find this with Bible study. You find this with preaching, right? Um, of course, you probably have all your whole sermon Christ mapped out Monday morning, right? It's just it's just there. It's just downloads. It's all ready to go. Don't have to check any sources. No, the Scripture corrects our thinking all the time. Uh, a third thing, it, it provides for us a Christian view of history, which helps us assess the present in light of God's overall arching plan of redemption. All right, so history is moving forward according to God's plan. A fifth thing, it's good for about ten minutes. Okay, all right, we'll take a break here. Um, history acquaints us. History acquaints us with the wisdom of other Christians, right? And I love to think about this because when you study history, you meet a lot of people you never knew before, right? Um, Steve loves to joke about getting old because you know, Alzheimer's or whatever, you meet new people every day, all right? But, but here you really meet new people, people you never knew, all right? Um, you know, you think in terms of here's good old origin, and this is exactly what he looked like. This is an exact selfie. From the from the third century, that that's him, all right. Yeah, for the first icon. But you know, you've heard about Origin, and he's obviously a bad guy, right? Hmm, maybe not. And so we'll talk about him a little bit, all right. Um, he's one of the first systematic theologians in the history of the church. So if you love systematic theology, you love church history. His book on first principles is a great stopping spot, all right. Um, you won't like everything you read. And some things you read, you'll want to throw it across the floor, all right? 
Uh, these, these, these glorious looking fellows, now this is not Jesus. Uh, this is probably Constantine. This is uh, some of the guys represented in iconic fashion at the Nicene Council, all right? And, uh, you know, if you, if you start seeing their lips move, like, yes, Patrick, or something like that, and you know, take a picture of that. No, you, you go. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. I got a selfie with all the all the council of Nicaea guys. And uh, so, you know, and, and the Nicene Council is an amazing thing to consider. Um, and here's the what this gets us a little bit out of patristics into the Westminster Assembly guys, all right? And um, they get to meet these guys and study these guys and consider what they had to say. And so I, I would encourage you as you're reading and think in terms of your you're interacting with people that are yeah, they're dead, but they still speak in a sense, and you're having the opportunity to meet them and interact with them through what they've what they've written. All right. Um, so number six, let's uh, move on here. Study church history because church history also offers us models for imitation. It offers us models for imitation. Uh, cautiously, humbly, and necessarily, right? It encourages us when we find people in church history that have gone before us. This is one of the reasons that the writer of Hebrews does what he does in chapter 11. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore being what? Surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And, and when we think about Hebrews chapter 12 and this crowd of, this crowd of witnesses, there's a couple ways to think about it, right? One, you could think about it as you're in an arena and the stands are filled with all these people, all right? And you're on the track and you're running the race, all right? And they're up there cheering you on as you do amazing things or gasping for breath as you fall or whatever. Well, that's one way to think about it. I think there's another way that the writer of Hebrews wants us to think about it. It's not so much that all these people are up in the stands cheering us on because they're all dead. <laughs> They've all gone. They've gone before. Think in terms of like maybe movies that you've seen about the Roman games or whatever, and they have statues, statues of the faithful, and they, they, they line the streets or they line the upper decks or whatever, and when you walk into the arena, or maybe maybe you go see the Cowboys play, all right, and you got the you got the ring of the ring of honor, all right, and you look up there on the ring of honor and you see Roger Staubach and you see Tony Dorsett and you see Michael Irvin, and you see, I don't know, different guys. I'm, I'm dating myself quite a bit here. Janice won't go out with me. I guess I'm dating myself. Anyway, the point would be that you see all these guys who have gone before. So they're what? They're the guys that made it. They're the guys that were faithful to the end. And they're not watching me so much as they're inspiring me, and they're encouraging me to be faithful to the end. When you read about Athanasius, and you read about what he went through physically, what he went through spiritually and emotionally, and how many times he got, he got exiled five times from his church and came back every time. I mean, pastors today get exiled from a church, they get dismissed, they never come back, they, they just move on. No, he wanted to be there, and he's banished, right? But he keeps coming back over and over. He knows some of the people don't like him. He knows they're mad at him or whatever, but he comes back over and over and over. And that kind of story about Athanasius, can inspire the pastor when he's weak, can inspire the Christian when they're struggling 
to be faithful. And I think that's the picture of Hebrews chapter 12. More than the cheering cloud of witnesses cheering me on, although that sounds neat too, like 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 the old movie Rudy or something, you know, when he's running running for the touchdown. Um, but uh, no, I think they're dead, and they're 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 pictured as these great examples. And then obviously the greatest example, if you will, for us, the greatest, the author and the finisher of our faith that Hebrews points us to is what is Christ. But he is the living one, and he is indeed uh, egging us on and cheering us on and praying for us that we might persevere. And Peter says he's a what? He is an example. He does show us uh, how uh, we can we can persevere and set the course for us. It's also humble. Uh, it's, 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 it's something humbly that humbles us because when we go to study history, and you're going to find this as you read your sources, all right? Uh, you want to avoid what's called hagiography, right? Um, you're going you're gonna to be tempted to put a white hat on all your guys and a black hat on all the other guys. And so now history becomes a, a, a telling of the tale of the good guys and the bad guys. When in fact, we all know that we're all what? We're all bad guys. We're all bad guys, right? We're all uh, under the judgment of God apart from the intervention of grace. So we, we approach it humbly, all right? Uh, we do it necessarily because history not only can be studied, but it should be studied, all right? Remembering those who've gone before us, Hebrews 13, 7, I see that as like a biblical mandate for the study of biography, and that's what we're doing. Biographical studies, one after another, events, one after another, and then trying to see how they hang together. Well, let's look at one seventh thing, and then we'll break about the study of history. If we're supposed to do all we do for what? The glory of God. If that's true, then you ought to study history for the glory of God. Right? Um, in the study of history, we discover, um, it's just a great picture of a cathedral. It's an abbey, and the, the, it's the, it's the, this is the, the Tewksbury Abbey. It was built in the 11th century. Uh, it's in Tewksbury, just north of Bristol. And I actually got to take that picture. It's just a cool picture. And uh, it's an amazing Anglo-Saxon period uh, abbey. Um, we discovered that all of history finds its significance and source in God alone. Everything is what? From him, through him, to him. The historian Christological controversy. From him, through him, to him. The Aryan controversy. From him, through him. To him. Uh, the divisions that rose up in the Corinthian church, what does Paul say? It's necessary that there be divisions, that it might be evident who's approved. Right? God is sovereign over divisions. He's sovereign over controversies. The Reformation, the Council of Trent, all these various things from him, through him, and to him. We find in the course of the study of history that Christ is the Lord of all history. All things do indeed point to him. And in the study of history, we come to learn and be encouraged in the reality that all of history, all of history is being sustained and directed by God at every point. In the study of history, number four, and finally, in the study of history viewed through the lenses of God's word, we see God making good of all of his covenant promises. And I just thought about these four things a little bit. You know, and number one there, uh, Discovering that all history finds its significance and source in God alone. In this, we praise God for his weightiness, his significance, and his glory. Right? 
right? Uh, of no other person are all these events in history said to be from, through, and to. They're not, they're not to us. <laughs> they're not just for our interesting study. It doesn't stop there, all right? Um, when we find out that Christ is the Lord of all history, all things point to him, and this we praise God for his sovereignty. Uh, uh, Merle Da um, Bain, I don't even know how to say that guy's name. I've said it a million times and I can never pronounce it. Dobinier. Say it again? Dobinier. Dobinier. I'll go with that. Okay. J. Merle Dobinier. Just put those two things together. Thank you. God ought to be proclaimed in history. The history of the world ought to be distinctively the annals of the government of a sovereign king. Is that not good? That's just great. Um, when, you, when we study history to learn and be encouraged by the reality that's sustained and directed by God, we praise him for his providence. He rules over all things. That didn't just stop with the close of the Bible. And when we think that God is making good of all his promises in history, we praise him for being faithful. And so that's kind of the opening motivator, if you will, hopefully, uh, to study 